Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please take your Bibles and open it to the book of James. James chapter 1. We continue our series in the book of James. James 1. Verses 9 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible, a hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you. You could grab that and turn to page 1071. Page 1071. We're going to spend the next hour thinking about these uh, truths from this section of Scripture, these four verses. So James chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. If this is your first time looking at a Bible, the big number is the chapter number and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So you can look at that and follow along. Our goal is to explain what this passage is saying, what God is saying to us as a church family from this passage, and how it um, shows us the goodness of God in Christ. So let me read to you James 1, verses 9 through 12, and then we'll pray and begin. Hear God's word from James 1, verse 9. Let the brother of... Humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and, together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us in all wisdom. Father, we thank you for this word, and we ask now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in these four verses. Help us to see your glory. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, to your truths, to your statutes, and not to material gain, especially with a passage like this of all passages. Unite our hearts to fear your name. Guard us from being a double-minded person, unstable in our ways. Give us a single, wholehearted devotion and commitment to Jesus Christ. Satisfy us this morning with your steadfast covenant love and truth and promises. And with Jesus Christ, that we would rejoice and be glad all of our days. Father, continue to use your word by your spirit's power to chip away and destroy our worldly, foolish, selfish, earthly ways of thinking about trials and continue to give us your wisdom and grace again and again as we go through episode after episode and season after season of trials until you take us home. Thank you that we're almost home. We pray that until we get there, you would use passages like this and this passage particular to strengthen our souls to make it home well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Have you ever met someone who was really annoying because they were obnoxiously arrogant, boastful? They'd brag, and even when they were being humble, it would be a humble brag. 
still kind of pointing to their, their greatness, their goodness. Bragging and boasting is a, as I was reflecting on it even with Josh this morning, um, it's a strange thing. Boasting is, a, is an act that you don't decide to do. It, it flows out from your joy, from your pride, and from what you take delight in, from, from what you find your identity in. You can't help but boast, just like you can't help but speak or think when you see something. It's a reaction to a deep delight, a deep sense of identity, a deep pride in something. So what is your passion? What do you take pride in? What do you love to be and do? In other words, what do you boast in? What do you find it so naturally for you to brag about and to talk about? One um, person who was diagnosed with cancer, a professor uh, who died at the age of 47, he said, when he was talking about boasting and finding a passion, living a meaningful life, he said, find your passion and follow it. And if there's anything I have learned in life, you will not find that passion in things. And you will not find that passion in money. Because the more things and the more money you have, the more you will just look around and use that as a metric. And there will always be someone with more. Now, this person is not a Christian. He's saying, don't find your passion and your boast in money and wealth. He says, your, pa continuing, he says, your passion must come from the things that fuel you from the inside. Things that fuel you from the inside. He talks about people who've honored him, who are greater than him, uh, above his peers, people who've thought well of him. And then he says, find your passion, and in my experience, no matter what you do at your work, well, no matter what you do at work, or what you do in official settings, that passion will be grounded in people. He's talking about your ultimate passion. It will be grounded in the relationships you have with people and, with, and what they think of you when your time comes, when you die. End quote. So this man is speaking of finding your passion. We all need to find our passion. We all have a passion. He's saying money's not the answer. And his answer is look within. And really, at the end of the day, you're going to find it in people. This answer is not completely off. There's, there's a lot of biblical truth to this. What are people going to say about you when you die, particularly those you care about? So I ask you again, what is your passion? What do you find, what do you take pride in? And is that passion strong enough to get you through the pains and pressures and brokenness and bereavement and heartbreak that you will, not you might, that you will experience in this life. Now, we all as Christians, we want to make it through life blessed and spiritually strong, faithful. We want to stand the test, it says in, in James 1.12. We want to stand the test approved of God, passing the test of the trials of this life. Don't we? We want that. That's what we want. But how can we do it when this world is filled with sorrow and decay and evil and brokenness and sickness and sin and trouble? Will our faith in Jesus stand under this pressure? What if it doesn't? What if we buckle under this pressure and ultimately just give up? Now, God gives us this passage, James 1, 9 through 12, to help us make it through and endure. And here's the key. So here's the key of this passage. Okay? Uh, the key, and it's not, I'm going to state the main goal differently, but let me just say it this way. The key is to be constantly and unabashedly boastful. That's the key. 
to be constantly, profusely, and unabashedly boastful. Not the annoying type of boastful, hopefully. But I think that's what this text is getting at. So here's the main goal, the way I stated the main goal. Boast when under trial so that you know that you're blessed. Boast when under burden so you know you're blessed. I think that's what, what James is getting at here. In verse 9, he says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation. There you have the command twice, right? Boast and boast. Now, in the Greek, it's only in verse 9. It's implied in verse 10, but that's a good, right, necessary implication. The command here, the call, is for you to boast, to brag, to express joy to others because of what you delight in, what you find your identity in. So how do we boast? Now, this is strange, though, because we're not boasting what people boast in when, they're, when you look at social media, right? If you go to someone's social media feed and you look at what they're boasting in, rarely do you find someone boasting in their trials. But that's what the text says. This is unnatural. How do you boast in trials? I could boast in victories. I could boast in success. I can boast in approval. I can boast when things are going well. How do I boast when I'm in trial? When I'm being crushed under the weight of the pressure of the difficulties of this life? How do I boast then? Well, this passage helps us. And there's three thoughts here, three ways of boasting so that you boast under trial. So here they are. Boast in your exaltation, verse 9. Boast in your humiliation, verses 10 and 11. And then boast in your destination, verse 12. Okay? Boast in your exaltation, boast in your humiliation, and boast in your destination. And all of that is boasting when you're in trial, when you're under pressure. So let's look at these one at a time. Okay, so the first one, verse 9, boast in your exaltation. Now the world says, when you're in, it says, let the brother of humble circumstances, let's just stop there. If you're in humble circumstances, if you're materially poor, if you're below the poverty level, if you are broken physically or mentally or emotionally or relationally, when you're broken and in humble circumstances, what does the world tell you to do? The world might tell you to be ashamed of your poverty. Boast in riches, not in humble circumstances. Boast in worldly exaltation at work or at sport or in art in your community, or in politics, or even in the Christian world, or in society. Don't boast in your, don't, don't, don't take pride in your humble circumstances. Actually be shy about that. Be ashamed of your poverty. Now, James and God has a different mentality. Look at verse 9 again. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast, not be ashamed, but boast in his exaltation. So before we talk about exaltation, let's talk about what it means to be in humble circumstances. I said this already, I alluded to it. It's material poverty, maybe in the first instance. You should think of those who are poor financially. Those who are materially poor, those who are poor should boast in their exaltation. But you could extend this application and the implication here of humble circumstances beyond financially humble circumstances. Okay? It can refer to people who um, perhaps you don't have a father. Or a mother. Perhaps you're bereaved. Maybe you're single and you'd like to be married and you find that as a humble circumstance. 
Maybe you're married and you'd like to be single or married to someone else and you find that a humbling circumstance. Maybe you just lost a loved one. Maybe you feel alone and it seems like you don't have any true friends, any real friends. You feel relationally impoverished. Maybe you always feel like you can't get the break and the opportunity that you need for you to succeed in life. You can't, that, you can't get that job you wanted or accept, get accepted in the school program that you desire. You can't get that financial break and that investment won't take off the way you hoped it would. Humble circumstances. Now, while you're in these humble circumstances, the command in verse 9 is what? To do what? To what? To boast. To boast in your exaltation. The alternative when you're in humble circumstances is to complain about your humble circumstances. To complain. Murmur. Shake your fist at God. Find people to sympathize with you and complain with you about your humble circumstances. Now, there is a place for lament. But here, the command is to boast in your exaltation when you're in humble circumstances. Now, one other way of summarizing this, these humble circumstances is to say that before the world, in the world's eyes, because we're talking about exaltation, what is the exaltation if you're in humble circumstances? This exaltation is a spiritual exaltation, a exaltation in God's eyes, which are the only eyes that finally matter. But in the world's eyes, you're considered to have to be in humble circumstances. As one preacher has said, being unimportant in the world's eyes has always been typical of God's people. Being unimportant in the world's eyes has always been typical of God's people. Now, we're not saying that there are no Christians who are important in the world's eyes. But by and large, the vast majority of Christians are unimportant in the world's eyes. They don't, the world doesn't see the kingdom of Christ, the true kingdom that will last forever. And therefore, what they measure as success, as exalted, as worthy of praise, as something admirable, something to, 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 to look forward to and to point at with admiration, the world doesn't see with kingdom eyes, with Christ-centered eyes. And Jesus even told us that, right? He said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Remember when the disciples were arguing with each other about who's the greatest, who's the most exalted? And Jesus said, the one who what? The one who serves will be great among you. And the greatest among you will be the one who is slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the greatest of all, right? He's the most exalted of all, but he faced the most humble of circumstances. So, brothers and sisters, don't get jaded by the world's definition of greatness and exaltation. Understand your exaltation. So, what is your exaltation in Christ? Well, if you are in Christ, look at verse 9. He calls the, the person of humble circumstances a what? You guys see it there? Or you can see the same word in verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my what? My brothers and sisters. So if you are a Christian, what are you to James? You're his what? Brother or sister. In other words, just like we have in the front of our bulletin, you are the family of God. Because God is our Father, we are the family of God. Our Heavenly Father graciously accepts us and cares for us. We are united as brothers and sisters. That is an exalted position in the universe. Brother of 
Jesus, sister of Jesus. It says in Romans 8 that he is the firstborn among many brothers. God is your father. You are an adopted child of God. That is an exalted position, and you should boast in that. Or look at James 1, 18. By God's own sovereign choice, by God's own choice, God gave us what? Birth by the word of truth. You are born again. You're born by the word of truth. So if you're poor in this world's eyes, if you have humble circumstances, if you're broken and you feel like you're, you're being cheated generally as this world counts a success and exaltation, you're a brother or sister in Christ. You are the family of God. You are born by God's choice, by his word of truth. Not everyone is born by his word of truth. Only Christians are. And that's you. Boast in your exaltation in Christ. Romans 5.2 says, We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Boast that you're almost home. That you have a home. And that this world is not your home. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. Paul's basically saying, I don't give a rip what the world thinks about what's exalted. I don't care what they think is impressive. I will boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. I have died to this world. In Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, we've been quoting it the last few weeks. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong person should not boast in his strength. The rich person should not boast in his riches. You can extend that. The healthy person shouldn't boast in his health. The, the famous person shouldn't boast in his fame. The one who's relationally connected shouldn't boast in his relational connection. What should you boast in? But the one who boasts, the text says, should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Do you remember when the disciples were casting out demons? I mean, how cool is that? To heal people who are sick. I mean, I was in a hospital this week with one of my children, as many of you know. How cool is it to just walk through the hospital and just heal people in the name of Jesus? Or you find people who are oppressed by demons. They've given in to sin, perhaps, or a demon has just overcome them, and they are oppressed and influenced heavily and controlled by demonic persons. That happens in our world today, here in Bellflower, in Los Angeles. Imagine having the power to say, in the name of Jesus, demons get out, and they leave. Now, in Luke chapter 10, in Luke chapter 10, the disciples of Jesus were, were given that power. They're healing the sick and they're casting out demons. And they're coming back to Jesus. Imagine this. You, you go on a ministry outing, right? It's like, all right, guys, go out for three days. Go heal people who are sick and cast out demons. So they go out and do it and they're just successful. And they come back to Jesus in Luke chapter 10. And they're like, Lord, even the demons are obeying us. And you know what Jesus says? In Luke 10, 20, he says, don't rejoice that the Spirit submits you. Rejoice or boast that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice and boast that your names are written in heaven. 
Are you one of humble circumstances and you can't cast out demons like me? <laughs> are, you the, are you one of those who are unable to heal the sick even though you'd like to heal the sick like me? That's a humble circumstance as a dad when you care about your child and you'd like to just snap your finger and heal them. But boast in your humble, as you're in your humble circumstances, boast in your exaltation. Tanner read for us. I changed it to my fault. I changed the text. You're like, the bulletin is not correct. It's not correct because I changed it as I was studying last night. Uh, Tanner read the, the story of Mephibosheth and David. Did you guys, were you guys following that story from 2 Samuel 9? This is a man who's, who is handicapped, who has special needs, who is unable to walk. Right? He is unable to walk. He's injured in both of his legs. He can't walk. He's part of an outcast family. He used to be the royal family. But now that David has taken the throne, King Saul's family has kind of looked, you know, down as kind of embarrassing and looked down upon. So here's a son of, grandson of King Saul, son of Jonathan, who, whose feet are both injured. He can't walk. And you don't have wheelchairs to wheel people around in those days, right? So he's going to have, he needs special care and attention from people. And David goes up to him, looks for him. He seeks him out as this man is marginalized by mainstream society, right? David seeks him out, takes him, and shows him kindness for the sake of his father, Jonathan. He says, I'm going to restore all your land. You're going to be wealthy again. Snaps his finger. Now you're wealthy. Here, Ziba, your servant, take care of all of his wealth. He's going to live here in Jerusalem, but you take all of his estate. You take care of that with all your servants and all your children. I'm going to keep Mephibosheth with me. He's going to eat at my table like one of the princes, one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth does for the rest of his life. Free meals. Imagine that. Imagine getting a free credit card, right? A free card that wherever you swipe, anywhere here in Los Angeles, which has the best food in the world, right? Imagine that. You get a card and like wherever you want to eat, you just, it's on him. It's on the king. Where would you go? What would you do? Who would your friends be when you have that card, right? <laughs> I mean, all kinds of people want to hang out with you at that point, even if you can't walk, even if they have to help you and wheel you around. That's what Mephibosheth got. He was exalted to the king's table. And what did he say? And Tanner read it so well. But what, what did Mephibosheth say to David as, David as King David was giving him all these blessings? He said, what is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog? I don't deserve this. Why? Why are you exalting me? And David says he does it because he wants to show kindness. Now that word kindness is a special word in Hebrew. It's the word chesed, which means faithful love, covenant love, grace, gospel grace. And that here is a picture, this picture of David exalting Mephibosheth is a picture of us, dead dogs, sinners, in need, needy, burdensome, useless according to the world and even to God, really, to God. We're, we're damned and condemned in our sins. And yet, just like David exalts Mephibosheth, God exalts a sinner like you and a sinner like me. I mean, think about Matthew. Matthew was, a, Matthew was a tax collector, right? He was a traitor. He was greedy. He was wealthy. He was selfish. He was sinful. And the Lord Jesus goes up to his tax booth. There in the middle of his treacherous, 
evil, selfish activity and says, come follow me. And automatically, Matthew follows Jesus and he becomes a disciple and then an apostle. And he's now, an ex- he's one of the 12 apostles. A sinful, evil, selfish, turned your back on the nation of Israel tax collector is exalted now as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is what God does. He takes sinners, he takes the lowly, he takes those with humble circumstances and exalts them. Praise God for lifting up the lowly and the needy to exalted positions under Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I have really, really good news for you. You can have the highest exaltation that you could ever dream of. The highest legitimate exaltation that you could ever dream of. Not being God, that would be the highest exaltation. But the highest exaltation you can have is to be a child of God. A brother of Jesus Christ. Someone who is forgiven of your sins, cleansed, adopted by God, born again, and given the very life of God in you. Where God dwells in you. Now, the problem is we're sinners. Okay, Christian or non-Christian. All of us are sinners. All of us deserve to be condemned and damned for our sins because God God created us. God is holy. And he made you to worship and enjoy him. But we have rebelled against God. We don't want to worship and enjoy him. We wanted to use him and maybe have a little bit of I love Jesus or I love God, but we wanted to use him for our real gods, our real treasures, our real boast, which wasn't him. And because of that, that's what the Bible calls sin. That's what the Bible calls evil. Sin is finding your identity ultimately in anything other than God. That's what sin is. And all of us are sinners. And because of that boast in some things other than God, We deserve to die and go to hell and burn in hell under God's wrath forever and ever and ever in the lake of fire. But God sent his son Jesus into the world. The exalted son of God took on the most humble of circumstances, becoming a man, but that's not the most humble part. Becoming a man lives a life we should have lived in perfection and then decides to suffer for our sins, allows himself to be betrayed allows people who are sinners who deserve damnation to spit on the Holy Son of God, to punch him in his face, to grab a reed and beat him, to put a crown of thorns on his head, to put a a, a nasty, ugly, purple robe around him and then pretend and mock worship him as the king of the Jews. And then they strip him of all his clothes and plaster him up on a wooden cross. And there he's embarrassed and ashamed in front of everyone. And more than that, God looks at him and God counts him as a sinner even though he never sinned and pours out his wrath on his son on that cross in darkness for the sins of others. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He rises from the dead on the third day. He's exalted to God's right hand in glory. And now everyone who repents from their sins and repents from their goodness and repents from all their other stupid and evil and shallow boastings and decides to trust in Jesus and boast in Jesus will have eternal life. So if you're not a Christian, God is inviting you right now to take an exalted place as one of Christ's people. Repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Call on him to save you. If you have more questions about that, you can ask me or any of the members of this church later. But let's, let's, let's kind of go back to the, the main application of this first point. Boast in your exaltation in Christ. Church family, what does this mean for our church, BBC? This means that you need to 
work with each other to fight the delusion that makes us see exaltation and greatness in the distorted and deceptive and demonic ways of the world. We need to help each other because your fellow members here, sometimes we lose our way, right? We forget where true exaltation is. Look at each other, look at a fellow church member, and tell them you're not crazy. You're not crazy. Go do that right now. Go ahead. Look at another church member and tell them you're not crazy. You're not crazy. If you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you're not crazy. Why? 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 Because, because you're exalted in Christ. Yes, you could, you're, you're giving up some of the world, worldly ambitions you have, but you're not crazy because you have true exaltation in Jesus Christ. Remind each other of that. If you're not a Christian, where do you find encouragement in your seeming insignificance by the world standards? When you're down and in a humble circumstance, where do you go? Or are you merely content to be a big fish in a really small pond? Children, children, just know this. God will exalt you in Jesus. Your greatest success and ambition, kids, your greatest success is not in getting good grades. It's not in impressing mom and dad. Your greatest success is in being one of Jesus' people. So trust in Jesus and receive Jesus. If you're discouraged, there's good news for you in this passage. You don't have to be spiritually strong to obey this command. It's not saying, if you're in humble circumstances, get out of that discouraging circumstance and then boast in Jesus. No, no. If you're discouraged right now spiritually or where you're at in your life, right now where you are, if you're discouraged, you can boast in Jesus right now from this position, this humble circumstance. God's grace is available to you now. You don't have to fix yourself first to boast in your exaltation. Quite the opposite. Praise God. God loves to exalt the lowly and to show the greatness of his grace and mercy. Praise God. God is so good to us. Let's go to the second point here. So if you're going to boast, under, boast when under trial so that you know that you're blessed, the first way is by boasting in your exaltation. Secondly, boast in your humiliation. Boast in your humiliation. Now that's strange. Look at, look at verse 10. Let the rich, but the, let the rich boast in his humiliation. There's the command. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Now the world says when you are in a humiliating circumstance... When you are in a dire situation, when you are destitute and stripped of your strength, what should you do? The world would say, don't boast in your weakness. What should you do with your weaknesses? Hide them. That's right. Hide them. Lie about them. Deflect the conversation when they ask how you're doing. Give a shallow answer. Don't let them in to see your humiliation. Deflect them. Don't let them see your pain or they'll just pity you and in their eyes, you will look pitiful. And nobody wants to look pitiful. So hide it. Don't boast in it. Isolate yourself. Push the humiliation to the side. See if you could keep going on. And maybe that, that humiliation will just kind of slowly fade away. That's not what God says. Let the rich man. Now, financially rich, but again, if we're talking about, if we're extending humble circumstances, we could extend even the richness. Let those who are financially rich, primarily in this text, 
those who are healthy, those who are strong, those who are relationally connected, those who are powerful, those who are smart, those who are of, of, of good repute, those who are influential, those who are resourced. Let those who are resourced and well-off boast in their humiliation. Now, I said this earlier at the beginning. Boasting is the natural expression of your deepest delight and identity. It's the natural and inevitable expression. You don't choose to boast usually. At least you don't choose that feeling of boasting. That feeling of boasting comes from your deep delight and identity, which you find identity in. Now, these verses are practical. You know, one of the hardest verses that guides my life, guides all, many of our lives, it's Philippians 1.21. For, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then Paul says after that, the craziest thing, I'd rather die than be alive. It's better for me to die now. I wish I was dead because I'd be with, with Christ because to be with Christ is far better. But you know why I'm here? I'm here for your sake. That's Philippians 1. I read a passage like that and I'm thinking, I'm not there. I don't want to die yet. I want to grow old with my wife. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to see what they're going to do with their lives. I want to be there for them. I want to see our church family grow and, and be a blessing to our neighbors and spread the gospel here in Southeast LA and see more healthy churches and see missionaries over the world, all over the world strengthened and resourced in some small way because of our small, tiny, drop, little grain of sand contribution to the great kingdom work of God. I want to see that. I don't want to die. But this passage helps me want to die. And this passage will help you want to die now or soon. Why? How, how? If you obey this passage, it'll help you have more of a Pauline mindset of being willing to die. What is this humiliation we're supposed to boast in? Let's ask that question first. So it says, let the rich person boast in his humiliation. What humiliation? What is the humiliation? Any of you guys have a guess? What that humiliation is we're supposed to boast in? What's that? Not being saved? So yeah, boast, the humiliation of not being saved, being out of the people of God? Withering away, boast and withering away? Okay, let me give you, now I've read a few commentaries on this and I'm going to give you uh, four wrong answers before I give you the fifth right answer, just briefly, okay? So just different commentators who spent a lot of time on James. Now I could be the wrong one, but I'm just going to give you my best answer, okay? Um, one person, um, Alec uh, Matir says, the humiliation is spiritual poverty. If you're rich, boast in your spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Matthew 5, 3. My problem with that is that poor, poor Christians are also poor in spirit, right? It's not, that's not a particular thing to the rich. So I'm like, ah, I don't like that answer. Spiritual poverty, yes, that's true, but that's not particular to the well-resourced. Maybe humiliation is the unbeliever's bankruptcy and condemnation, which, what my dad just said. That's Jay Adams. I think that could be a possibility, but um, in contrast to the crown of life in verse 12. But I think he's speaking to Christians. Now, this is a debate. I think James is speaking to Christians here. Not like, if, if you want to see how he speaks to the rich who are not Christian, look at James 5, 1 through 6. But here, I don't think he's just being ironically sarcastic towards non-Christians, though that is a possibility. I just don't think that's the case. Okay, so that's the second one. The third one by one of my favorite commentators, Doug Moo, he says, it's a test of prosperity. When you're rich, that's a test, isn't it? Isn't that a trial? To, to glorify God with the test of prosperity. Now, prosperity certainly is a test, and the poor don't have this test, so that is unique to the rich. 
I don't know what's necessarily humbling about this test, though. I agree with the late rapper, Biggie Smalls, who said, Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> That's not exactly humiliation. I mean, it, it, there are problems there, it's humbling in some way, but, but, but it's not a humiliating thing. I don't think that's what it's at, the test of prosperity. Craig Blomberg, another good commentator and scholar, says it's some kind of spiritual humbling. And I'm like, yeah, but poor Christians also have a spiritual humbling. That's not, what, what gets at this? So you got to go back a few hundred years to John Calvin. So I, I like John Calvin's answer. Here's John Calvin's answer. It's the casting down of one's carnal excellency. Is that helpful for you? <laughs> the casting down of one's carnal excellency. That's not really modern language, so let me, let me translate. The way I would say it, state it is this. Here's the humiliation. The trials, boast in the trials, which show the insufficiency of your riches to resolve your problem. That's the humiliation. When your health is not healthy enough, when your money is not money enough, your wealth is not wealth enough, when your, your smartness and your intellect and your, your wisdom is not wisdom enough. When you cannot solve the problem, it's humiliating. You have all these resources by the world standards, right? And yet with all that you have, you can't solve the problem. That's humiliating. And what James is saying is when you're in that humiliating circumstance, what should you do? Boast. Brag that you can't solve it. Boast and take, take pride in the fact that you are unable to fix it with your resources. <laughs> humiliation comes to us all, rich and poor, strong and weak, educated and less educated. But for the rich, the humiliation is in exposing our misplaced confidence that our earthly resources and riches or health or youth or power or whatever would or could deliver us from such trials and troubles in life. And the answer is it can't. Rich people have problems too. And there are no amount of riches that can make you problem free in this life. And so this is particularly humbling for the rich. Now this command feels impossible because boasting, as our securities buckle up under us, right? As what you find security in gives way from under you and you feel like you have no more security, that's unsettling. And God calls us not just to, you know, boasting here, it's a command that you can't fake. You can't fake boasting. Boasting comes from a real feeling of joy and pride, right? I mean, I guess you could fake boasting. You couldn't really boast though, right? A, a, a deep, heartfelt boast comes from a deep, heartfelt pride and identity in what you're in. And James is not calling for you to just boast with your lips. He's calling you to feel joy. If I could go back to James 1, 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. Deep joy? Full joy? A joy that's so joyful that I'm going to boast in my humiliation? And James is saying, yes. Yes, boast in your humiliation. And the more you do this, the more you'll be living Christ and counting dying as gain. Why? Why should you boast in your humiliation? The rest of verses 10 and 11 give you the reason. Look at verses 10 and 11. Let the rich boast in his humiliation. Why? You guys see it there? Because he will pass away like a flower of the field. Okay, so I should boast that I can't solve my problems with my resources because I'm going to pass away like a flower of the field. Explain, James. Okay, James goes to verse 11. Well, let me explain. For the sun rises 
And together with the scorching wind, the, 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 wind the, the hot wind and the hot sun work together in verse 11 so that it dries up the grass and the flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. Flowers are pretty. They're beautiful. But they keep changing, right, over seasons. They, they don't last forever. Even the ones you don't cut, the ones that stay in the ground, they don't last forever. They fall off. The heat comes, the sun comes, and it's temporary. It's fleeting. And just like a flower that's here for one season of spring and gone in the fall, so is the rich man with all of his resources. Have you ever bought flowers for someone? How long do they last? That's why my wife doesn't want me buying flowers for her anymore. She tells me I brought flowers. Don't buy flowers for me anymore. Buy me plants. <laughs> all right, all right, I'll buy you plants. Got Let's buy you plants. They, they last longer, right? Yeah, they do, and they do. And our house is filled with plants now, and it's great. Flowers don't last long. That's what James says in James 4.13, right? Our lives are what? A vapor, a mist. You're here, and then you're gone. Now look at verse 11 again. When does this person, to finish the thought, in the same way, just like the flower falls off, just like it doesn't last, in the same way, the rich person will what? Wither away. Wither away. This, this next word is the, is the weightiest of all the words. While pursuing his activities. When will he die? When, he will, when will he wither away? When? While he's pursuing his activities. This is jarring. This is sobering and this is weighty. Your current important and indispensable pursuit right now that you're working on is no guarantee that God's going to let you live to finish it, including this sermon I'm preaching, right? I think this is important. One of the most, maybe one of the most, maybe the most important thing I do in my life is stand behind this pulpit and preach the word of God. This is important. And yet that, that pursuit, that endeavor is no guarantee that I'm going to live to the end of the sermon. And whatever you're pursuing, the rich person, while he's in pursuit of those things, he's going to what? Wither away and die. While pursuing our activities, we wither away and perish. Now, Steve Jobs, who is responsible for iPhones and Apple products of these days, uh, there's a fake quote by him on his deathbed. Have you seen that fake quote? It's not real, but it's really good. And so I'm going to quote it anyways. It's not Steve Jobs. It does fit his life, though. But I think it really gets at, the point is, this, it's more of the sentiment. The sentiment really gets at, now, Steve Jobs died a billionaire. And he had cancer, pancreatic cancer. And he, they gave him three to six months or maybe a year, and he lasted uh, seven years or 2005 to 2012. Yeah, about seven or eight years. So he did last, his money made him last a little bit longer seven or eight years, but he still died of cancer. And when he died, so here's, here's the, um, the, the words attributed to him. Now, now, these thoughts are really helpful. It says, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is the epitome of success. In the world's eyes, right? However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, my wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, lying on my bed and recalling my life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of my death. You can employ someone to drive a car for you, 
make money for you, but you cannot have someone bear your sickness for you. Material things lost can be found or replaced, but there's one thing that can never be found when it's lost, life. Whichever stage in life you're in right now, with time, you will face the day when the curtain falls. Now again, he probably didn't say that, but certainly fits him, and that would be a wise thing for him to say if he did say it, but that's true, right? Your money can't save you. It's humiliating. You're going to die, and you're going to die soon, maybe even in the prime of your life and career. You may use your prestige and power and wealth to pursue wisdom and pleasure and possessions and pursue valuable work in your life, pursue justice. But like the author of Ecclesiastes says, absolute futility, says the teacher, absolute futility, everything is futile. In Luke chapter 12, verses 15 and 21, you can look at that later. I was going to have you turn there, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize here. This man gets rich and his barns explode. His investments take off and this guy becomes a billionaire. His stocks are going through the roof, right? His barns, his crops are just growing a hundredfold. So he's like, oh man, I got all this riches. I got all this wealth. I got all this resource. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns to house all of my wealth. And then a voice comes from heaven and says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. So it is, Jesus says, with everyone who is not rich toward God, who boast in their riches rather than in their humiliation because you will die one day and that one day is sooner than you think. Boasting in your humiliation brings an end to worldliness and worldly pursuits because it sobers you to what really counts, what really matters. Craig Blomberg says this in his commentary. How many of us, and I'm convicted by this, maybe you'll be convicted by this and helped. How many of us have fallen so in love with this world that if we knew we were going to die tonight, we would experience genuine sorrow because of missed opportunities for various earthly pleasures? Unless we recognize the utter transience of this life and the potential suddenness of its end, and unless we live each moment for Christ with a sense of urgency about redeeming the time, we risk tacitly worshiping the world. And that's the issue right there. One of the big issues in James. The reason we're scared to die, all of our illegitimate fears of dying, is because we're in love with this world. So boast in your humiliation because your humiliation breaks that love for the world. It weakens it. It attacks it. It refocuses your eyes and your heart on what really matters because your life is a vapor and you're almost done. So church family, boast in humiliation. Christian, boast, that means uh, boast in the fact that God is humbling you to the reality that you will die like all other people do, even poor people. Rejoice in your trial, boast in your trial because it reminds you of your mortality. Boast in your trial because it points your eyes back up to God, away from your earthly resources, to realize that your only boast is in God. Boast in your humiliation because God gives grace. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Boast in your humiliation because that brings you back to your root attitude that was at the beginning of your Christian life. Do you remember how you became a Christian? You humbled yourself. And you submitted and said, I trust Jesus no matter what, and he's better than life itself. I'm going to take up my cross, die to myself, and follow him. He's worth more than everything. That's what you said when you became a Christian. 
That is actually the faith you need to endure trials and boast in your trials and in your humiliation now. So brothers and sisters, let's remind each other of our death and our futility in this world. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? If you're discouraged, boast in your discouragement. Boast in how these humbling burdens point you away from yourself to Jesus. Praise God that he actively and kindly weans us off of our worldly idolatry to see and embrace him as our true treasure and identity and boast. Okay, so if we're going to boast when we're under trials to know that we're blessed, we need to boast in our exaltation, number one. Secondly, we need to boast in our humiliation. And lastly, we need to boast in our destination. Verse 12, boast in your destination. Look at verse 12 with me. Blessed is the one who endures trials, the text says, because when he has stood the test of time, or the, not the test of time, when he stood the test, the trial, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. You will boast in humiliation, and when you boast in humiliation, that will help you endure trials. That's actually how you endure trials, by considering a great joy, by boasting in the humiliation. And when you have joy, joy in trial, remember James 1, 2 through 4? When you boast and you rejoice in your trial, you will build your what? Endurance. And when endurance have its, has its full effect, you will be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And when you do lack something like wisdom, you can ask God and God will give you what? Wisdom in your trials, right? So when you boast in your trial and you get endurance through your trial and you get maturity in your trial and you get wisdom from your trial and you do that trial after trial after trial for the rest of your days, that's how you endure the test of trials. And the ones who do that are blessed, James says. Because they've endured the test of faith, the testings of faith. And these testings of faith, by the way, are in, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, are the end time tribulation testings. We are in the last days, and the tests we have are the last days testings from Satan and from the world as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus. Jesus summarized it this way. So you can look at Daniel 12, 12 and 13 for homework. Listen to Matthew 24, 13. Jesus put it this way. In Matthew 24, 13, he says... Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you endure to the end, you'll be saved, or according to James, you are considered what? Blessed. Not cursed by God, not outside of God's favor, not damned, but blessed. With God's favor shining on you, his face shining on you and looking at you and giving you his peace, his shalom, his blessing. That's what Christians are. They endure to the end. They boast in trials all the way to the end. And you will receive, what does it say in verse 12? Go back to James 1.12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because, why? Why are you blessed? Because when he has stood the test and he's approved and he goes through the trials, he will receive what? The crown of life. Now, who wears a crown? A king or a prince, and I've, been watch, I've watched all the festivities, like the formal festivities for the crowning of the king of England, King Charles III. Um, yeah, uh, kings wear crowns, but who else wears crowns? 
winners. And that's actually the, the word. There's two different words for crown in Greek, and the word here is not for royalty. It's for winners. When you win the race, you get a wreath, right? It's a, it's a crown that's going to fade, right? It's plants, right? You get some plants on your head. But um, you, get the, you get the crown, right? The wreath. And you, you put that on, and that sh- shows that you're the winner. And so the one who endures to the end passes the test. You get a trophy, or like we like to say in basketball, you get a ring, right? A championship ring. You get the prize. You get the crown. And the crown is a crown of what? Life. life, referring to eternal life. Ruling and reigning with God forever. This is God's promise. It says that in verse, let's go back to verse 12. The crown of life that God has promised. He didn't promise this to everyone. Who did he promise it to? Look at it. Verse 12. The crown of life that God has promised to whom? To those who what? Love him. To those who love him. That's a correct translation. It's just kind of mild. Let me give you two other translations. Let me give you the message, which is not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But this is what he says. What God has promised to those who are loyally in love with God. I love that. Those who are loyally in love with God. They're loyal. Even in trials, they stick to God. They cling to Christ. Or I like how the ISV translates it. He will receive the victor's crown of life that God has promised to those who keep on loving him. It brings out that present aspect to this word. Those who not just love him in the beginning, but they keep on loving him. Jesus said the love of many will grow what? Cold. Or I like the King James there. The love of many will wax cold. But those who keep on loving him. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose will endure to the end. Ultimately, you will continually and loyally love God in your trials if you're a Christian. And why? Because those trials, what, are the, what do those trials do to your love? Those trials refine your love. It deepens your love for God. It strengthens your love for God. It matures your love for God. It completes your love for God. And it leads you to the consummation of your love for God. When Christ returns. So church family, let's remind each other where our true boast is when the world makes us think we're crazy. When the world makes us think we're insignificant or that we're wrongheaded. You have a crown of life. That is your destination. So boast in your trials because you're boasting in your destination. The crown of life. Praise God for being sovereign over your trials. God is sovereign over your trials. They're not an accident. God is wise in your trials. He gives each of you your unique trials that you need for your life right now. And God is good to us in our trials. He loves us. We love because he first loved us. He loves us. He's moving us toward our final home and drawing our hearts more and more toward him and less and less in love with this world. And God loves to do this because it turns us into more faithful worshipers of him. And it delivers us from the worldly weight that seeks to drag us down to hell and choke out our faith in Jesus. So let me summarize again as we close. Main, what's the main goal? Boast when you're under trial so that you know that you're blessed, so that you know that that is your destination. And you do that by boasting in your exaltation, your status in Christ, your humiliation, because your resources will never be enough to eliminate your trials in this world. And you do that by boasting in your destination, that you are blessed and you have the crown of life waiting for you. Now, when I read a text like this, I just feel my failure. I don't boast in my trial, my trials this week, 
and I don't embrace them, but I wish that they'd pass. And I wish that I could just automatically grow in my Christian life. But God wants me to learn in the process under the pressure of trials. And how does this text show me the beauty of Christ? How does this text show us the beauty of God in Christ? That Jesus meets us in our exaltation. He meets us in our humble circumstances. He meets us in our humiliation. And he meets us in our hoping, in our destination. And he helps us. He helps me enjoy loving him. I need to boast in being a powerless dad. I need to boast in being a powerless uncle. A husband in need of growth. I need to boast in being a pastor who would just love to take away trials from members but can't. But God is there. That's where he meets us in our insufficiency and in our weakness. So identify the biggest trial in your life in this moment and embrace Christ in that trial. Meet him there. Thank him from your heart. Start with your words, maybe, but ask God to change your heart so that you thank him from your heart for your trials. Boast in your trials. And when we have a hard time boasting our trials from our hearts, let's look again to Jesus, the only one who always boasted in God and in his trials from his heart. Jesus embraced God in his trials. It says that for the joy set before him in his boasting, in his joy, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He died for sinners and took the most humble and humiliating of circumstances because he boasted in his trials. It was his joy to be exalted and resurrected and, put, and seated at the right hand of God. And now Christ ministers to us so that we have grace and mercy and his presence and his communion to help us in our time of need. If we don't identify our biggest trial and boast in the Lord, we might not, we won't grow better, we will grow bitter. We will not endure and we will not grow as we should as a Christian. But if you, in all your weakness, I'm not asking you to be a strong Christian here, in all your weakness, if you could just look to the Lord and thank him for your trials, even when you don't know how it's gonna end, just Lord, thank you for humbling me and reminding me that you are here. Jesus will hold you fast. He will get you through. And he will fit and shape your heart more and more for heaven as he matures you in that moment of boasting. And this is all by his grace. So I asked you in the very beginning, what is your passion? What are you boasting in? I'm calling you to be someone who is regularly and unabashedly boasting, being a boastful person. But what is our boast in? It's in knowing and enjoying Jesus the Messiah in and through our humiliation, our hurts, and our trials. Like we sang in the morning, in the beginning of this gathering, even in trials, all I have is Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good and that you are wise and that you are sovereign. And we thank you that you meet us here in our humble circumstances, in our humiliation, and in our trials. We need you, we love you, and we hope in you. Help us to cling to you and help us to help each other as a church family cling to you. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.